Ed Dowd is on this podcast to talk about his latest book, Cause Unknown, which talks about the rise in excess deaths following the vaccinations that have swept across the world. He's formerly a fund manager at BlackRock. And during his time at BlackRock, he grew a fund from $3 billion to $14 billion underneath his management, which means that he actually was able to spot trends in the market and analyze data smarter and more effectively than his peers and then the general public. And if you don't know who BlackRock is, they have over $10 trillion in assets, which makes them one of the largest financial institutions in the world, only behind the U.S. and Chinese economies. So Ed is one of the smartest financial minds and one of the smartest minds in analyzing data in the world. And the data he is analyzing post-vaccination is incredibly disturbing. And that makes this podcast heavy. But throughout the heaviness of this podcast is also a message of hope, a message of the power of the human body, the human mind, and the importance that we actually are aware of the data and understand what the numbers are showing. And we're going to do our best to just show the numbers. And if you're watching this on video, we're going to show the numbers as best we can, flashing them on the screen, and then having the actual reports in the show notes. And just show what the numbers indicate. Also offer a message of hope and not try to point fingers and make allegations. That's not the point of this podcast. It's just to actually show the reality as we see it, as Ed sees it, and offer also alternate hypotheses to explain the data because the data is just the data and the data comes from verifiable sources. So this is a heavy podcast and it goes also into what the financial implications might be, which of course, Ed is one of the premier experts on this subject as well. So this is a very important podcast and I encourage you guys to listen with an open mind and also do your own fact checking and we'll do our best to offer that. His book, Cause Unknown, has QR codes on every article and behind every fact and statistic that he lists. And so we'll do our best to do the same and honor the way that he presented this information in this podcast as well. Before we go into our sponsors, I want to let you guys know that we're opening up the year-long Fit for Service program for an additional week here at the start of January. It's gonna be the most incredible program that we've ever put together. We're continually adding new coaches and musicians like Waira, Stefano Safandos, Christine Hassler. They're some of the latest additions to our all-star lineup, including Aaron Rodgers and Peter Crone and Kelly Brogan. And one of the things I'm really looking forward to with this community and already speaking to some of the members that have joined is everybody feels ready to join hands and face the shared horizon. And after listening to a podcast like this one with Ed Dowd, you might be wondering, like, what is it that we can do? How can we stand together? Well, that's the point. We need to stand together and face all of the challenges that we're going to face as a community. There's only strength in those type of numbers and that type of solidarity. And I feel that with the full Fit for Service alumni, and I'm excited about cultivating that with the year-long group this year. And of course, to really be able to stand together, you need to be able to stand individually. So we're focusing on all of the different categories, including an extra emphasis on how to be financially fit for service, to really take care of all of your base financial needs, which has been a big request of the community. So we're diving into that emotionally, spiritually, romantically, every different category that you can imagine, we're going to be honing and training a group that can stand for the good, stand for the true, stand for the beautiful, stand for the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. So if you're called to this and you want to stand with us, 
Once again, applications are open for a week here at the start of January. And I can't wait to see you on the inside. And now a word from our sponsors. So if you guys have been following me for a while, you know that sauna is an integral part of my life. Hot, cold requires the hot as well as the cold. And for the hot, one of the best options you can do is to get a dry sauna. And Redwood Outdoors makes one of the most beautiful saunas I've ever seen. I have one set up in my backyard. And ultimately, I have it pretty close to my own plunge pool. And I go back and forth between the sauna and the cold. And this becomes one of the reasons I think why these last few years have been the healthiest years of my life. So this is one of the most well-known and best brands on the market for saunas. I bought one in 2021, long before Redwood was a sponsor of the show. And it's just beautiful, you know, and they were super helpful when, uh, when we needed some support with the different assembly and pieces. And I think once you guys take a look at what these saunas look like, and once you really understand how awesome it is to have a sauna in your life, I think you're going to want to check this out. So go to redwoodoutdoors.com, use the code AMP250 for $250 off on orders of $3,500 or more. Once again, redwoodoutdoors.com, Use the code AMP250 for $250 off on orders of $3,500 or more. Next up, we have Mudwater. Now, Mudwater is one of my favorite products that are out there in the health and wellness better for you space. It's a coffee alternative. It has four adaptogenic mushrooms. It has cacao, Ayurvedic herbs, and it's really a coffee alternative. It has a fraction of the caffeine of a cup of coffee, but I do like a little bit of caffeine, and Mudwater just hits that sweet spot. It doesn't have a bunch of sugar or anything in there, so if you want to add your own sweetener, you're welcome to, or if you're mixing it in a shake or a warm morning drink like I often do, it's just really a kind of a perfect product, and it's no surprise that Mudwater has done so well as a company because it's just phenomenal, and phenomenal all the way up, all the way down, not only from the quality of ingredients, the flavor profile, and also just the customer service and the ethos of the company itself. I am a huge fan. And again, cacao and chai for mood and a microdose of caffeine. They got lion's mane, which helps with cognitive support and alertness. Cordyceps, which is the flagship ingredient in our product, Shroom Tech Sport from Onnit. It's got chaga and reishi to support your immune system and offer that little bit of calm that comes with the reishi mushroom. Turmeric is also one of those great products for any kind of stiffness or soreness you might be feeling. And cinnamon, which is an ingredient that's very close to my heart, that also has a bunch of antioxidants and actually in high enough amounts can help with blood sugar regulation. I talk about that a bit in my book, Own the Day. So mud water is just one of those things that if you're curious about a coffee alternative and you like making delicious beverages, whether they're smoothies or hot drinks, I highly recommend it. It's Whole30 approved, 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, kosher certified. It's got all the goods. So go to mudwater.com slash amp. That's M-U-D-W-T-R.com slash amp. And use the code Aubrey to get 15% off at checkout. Once again, the code Aubrey for 15% at checkout. Next up, we have Four Visions Market. And Four Visions Market is kind of my go-to place for a lot of shamanic tools. It supports over 30 different indigenous artists and their families through more than fair trade purchase of so their spiritual tools and art. 
They got high quality made in prayer medicines. It's a bridge to over 15 Amazonian tribes that are sharing their traditions and really their magic and medicine. 50% of the proceeds are going to go directly to the tribes, artisans, and healers. And on top of that, Four Visions Market donates 10% of their profits to their partner nonprofit movement for Amazonian growth in indigenous cultures. They call it the Magic Fund and other different Amazonian operations with missions that are aligned with their values. This year, Four Visions Market, they're spearheading a native plant reforestation and seed preservation project in the Colombian Amazon, as well as a bunch of different support for the Putumayo region and the hundreds of indigenous people there. The tools from the Four Visions Markets, they're all handcrafted if you're talking about caripes or tepes, and all of the different botanicals, they're wild harvested, again, in sacred prayer, again, in sacred prayer and the proper way. And you're really receiving you know, genuine medicinal tools from these incredible traditions that have deeply impacted my life. So some of the products, they include, they have an Ambi Sachayage microdose tincture, ceremonial grade cacaos, Amazonian king nettle, melipona honey eye drops for eye health, nausea oil for nasal support, achilcoagüe healing spray, and of course, their hape, which I absolutely love. So if you're interested in any of these goodies, Check out fourvisionsmarket.com, F-O-U-R, visionsmarket.com, and use the code AMP, AMP, for 15% off your very first order. And finally, we have on it. And I'm going to talk again about Alpha Brain Black Label. It took us 10 years to find a formula that was the Black Label version of Alpha Brain. What does Black Label mean? Well, that's just like the premium. That's the good shit. That's the top shelf shit. Now I love Alpha Brain. I'm actually on Alpha Brain regular right now, and I feel sharp as fuck, and I love it. But that's really actually only because I ran out of Alpha Brain Black Label. The reason that I like Black Label so much is it just has a couple different key ingredients. It has some nutritional mushrooms that actually help light up the brain it also has different forms of choline and it has mucunipurians which really taps into the dopamine system and really keeps me highly engaged focused and rewarded for the work that i'm doing so alpha brain black label is just my absolute go-to it's also really good as a mood enhancer i just feel better when i'm taking it and when my mood is better i'm more productive and i'm able to be at my best so if you guys haven't checked it out please do it is the shit also the packaging is super sexy so it's a great gift if you want to give it to somebody go to onit.com slash aubrey for 10 percent off everything at onit and also alpha brain black label once again onit.com slash aubrey and now an uninterrupted podcast with ed dowd ed glad to have you on the podcast man aubrey thanks for having me on today good to be here yeah for sure you know, I have to say that when I read uh, this book, Cause Unknown, I started reading through it with some curiosity. You know, I'd listened to an interview you did uh, with Mercola and, you know, it sounded really compelling. And one of the things I appreciated was, you know, my father was a commodities trader, grew up in the Paul Jones, Bruce Kovner era, Commodities Corp. And so I understood the terminology that you use thinking, you know, in finance, which is your background, being a fund manager at BlackRock, you know, the largest institution, financial institution in the world that's private, at least second only to US and China, I believe, and assets managed, basically. And, but the way that you thought about it was the same way that my dad would analyze whether, you know, soybeans were going to, you know, have a have a strong season or whether gold prices were going to sell off or, or, you know, 
be strong or bullish in, in the future. And it was a very like analytical and dispassionate way that you approached all of the data. And so I deeply appreciated that. And, and that was kind of the mindset that I went into the book. And I, and I wanna, of course, let you talk about that mindset, but also just to share that I started reading this book on a nice sunny day out at my farm in Lockhart. And I started, I just broke down and just started bawling. And I get emotional thinking about it because it felt like I was looking at like a slow and disconnected version of 9-11. Like all of the faces that you have in here of the people who've died. And, and you have QR codes to every one of the articles. And you start to just see face after face after face of people who are full of life and who are no longer here and then start to look at the statistics of, you know, a very plausible explanation of why that might be. And it's just absolutely fucking, it's devastating, man. It's like, it's really devastating. And, you know, we won't be able to hold the emotional gravity of this, but I just want to like establish like, yeah, we're going to be talking a lot of numbers and science, but the, one of the most powerful things about this is these are real people. These are not just numbers. Excess deaths are not some statistic alone. Every single point on that statistic is someone with a life and a history and a mother and a father and children and friends and like and a, and a song that they could sing that's only theirs to sing for the world. Like, it's fucking heavy, man. It's uh, really, I, really heavy. I absolutely agree with you. And you know, um, you know, as a numbers guy, that's what we did in the book we wanted to establish these are big numbers but they have real human consequences and real sad tragedies and the biggest thing that really upsets me is uh my data suggests is there was a mixed shift from old to young in 21 and 22 and the the tragic deaths and we start with the you know the athletic deaths the sudden mm -hmm. athletic deaths because these are the most elite fittest amongst us and I wanted to show that what's going on is true. First, is it true? And forget about why. Just, you know, suspend that. But, you know, by showing all these individual stories from local newspapers, they don't really ever make it to the national level. We wanted to put a human face on it and really connect people to, with what's going on, that this is, just isn't some uh, statistical anomaly caused by climate change caused by xyz these are real young people dying in the prime of their life on the field and one of the most compelling studies that was done was the Lausanne study and it it it, it uh it, it spanned 38 years and it cataloged 1100 sudden athletic deaths over 38 years that's about 29 per year globally and you know, I just want to establish for people who may not believe what, you know, I believe or you believe, but there's something new going on and it's undeniable and it's true. We can't have a month. We don't have a month now. We'd be lucky to have a month with 29 sudden athletic deaths since 2021. There, there are months with 90, 100, 150. And we catalog in the book 550. A, a bunch of the stories are featured up front, but then there's a compendium with all the stories. And... I want people to understand that this is true. It's happening. Now, you may not agree with what my thesis of the case is, but the health authorities of the, of the globe and this country in particular don't seem to care. And they don't want to talk about it. 
and we've created a new term called sudden adult death syndrome that just kind of mysteriously uh, came into being in 2021. And all that is, it's a term. It doesn't explain anything. It's just a new term. It's a, it's, it's a term used to just kind of wash, whitewash this and make it normal. And uh, I call, there's a section of the book called the sad new normal, because this is what it is. And, uh, you know, the data that you, you read and, and, the, the, and, and the emotional um, way you thought about this is why we wrote the book. We want to, you know, really pound this home. That these aren't just numbers. These are real people taken out in the prime of their lives. And the and if you think athletic uh, sudden athletic, athletic deaths are tragic, these are the fittest amongst us. Can you imagine what's happening for the less fit? And the numbers bear that out. So it's this is nine eleven uh, on steroids. It's it's interesting to think about how you know the narrative shapes the way that we think about reality. Because back in the day where you know, if you had any ideas about hesitancy, they called it vaccine hesitancy. And again, that's a, that's a term that was used and in, in, in almost weaponized in a certain way to mean that you had some kind of mental disability the way it was. But if you proposed any idea that meant that you were hesitant, you know, hesitant about the information about these vaccines and kind of resistant to the lockdown policies or whatever, people would start throwing in your face all of the deaths that occurred from COVID, you know, and whatever, whatever you might want to say about the numbers, whether they're inflated or not, there were actual deaths that happened from COVID, no doubt about it, right? The COVID did kill some people, absolutely. And so they used those deaths to just hammer you relentlessly about anything that opposed the ideology of the vaccine. But now in the inverse, where you have clear statistics where people are dying suddenly, without cause, after having been vaccinated, those same arguments, uh, which are like appeals to death, basically, you, they're not being used in the same way. And it's just this, it's like a flip of the way that the psychology works. Now those deaths are excusable. Just put another term and another name on it and it's excusable. It's excusable if it's sudden adult death syndrome. No worries, nothing to see here. But if it was a COVID death, you know, like that was something that was, like right in the forefront. And there's so many psychodynamics at play at the very least that make this a very difficult, you know, a very difficult story to talk about in the, in the public zeitgeist. Absolutely. And, um, if you remember in 2020, uh, a lot of the news channels, especially CNN and MSNBC had tickers of, uh, the number of deaths from COVID and the cases and you roll forward to 2021 and 2022 excess mortality is up across the globe and it's a uh, it's up not a little bit but a lot and uh, in 2021 we had 40% excess mortality in the group life policyholders of this country which is corporate america and mid-sized companies 40% 10% is a um uh, uh uh once in a 200 year flood is described by a senior uh ceo at one america 40% he said is off the charts and so let me just let me just let me just define a few things for people. So group life, you know, that group life category, these are people with life insurance employed at major corporations, right? Is, do I have that right? You're correct. And I, I, I don't know what your uh, employment background has been, but mine was in corporate America. And every time I switched mm -hmm. a job, you'd go into the HR office or sit at your desk and fill out your HR forms, one of which was your health care form, you pick your health care plan. 
then the other one was uh, what we all laughed about. It was kind of a kind of a freebie benefit. You signed your uh, group life policy. You signed it, then you named a beneficiary. If you were single, you named your mom and dad. If you were, right. if you were married, you named your wife or a husband. Um, and you know, throughout my whole career, I, you know, usually it was one to two times your salary, your base salary. And it was just something you never thought about because when you're in your 30s, 40s, and even 50s, you just don't think about dying. Um, so this is a very specific group of people. It's a subset of the U.S. population. And they to get the, the, the death claim, the benefit, you have to be employed at the time. So this is a group of people, as uh, the Society of Actuaries has proven in prior studies, is much healthier than the general population. And they experience mortality in any given year, 30 to 40% that of the general population. Makes sense. They're the most educated, uh, access to better healthcare, and are you know showing up to work. They're able to get there. So they're not you know, uh, getting sick and then getting fired. They're there. And uh, in 2021, they experienced 40% excess mortality as this is the Society of Actuary numbers, not my numbers. And this came out in August. The general U.S. population experienced 32% excess mortality in 2021. So that relationship suddenly flipped on its head in 2021. This, you know, amazingly um, healthy group of individuals decided to uh, uh, collectively die at a much uh, higher excess death rate than the general U.S. population, which is less less healthy. And, uh, you know, uh, to make matters worse, um, uh, the mainstream media explained this with a couple different things. Um, it was, uh, and I was fact-checked by Reuters and AP early on when I discovered this data in March. We had the CDC data, which then later was verified by the Society of Actuaries. They fact-checked me and said, um, our experts say that it's not caused by the vaccines. It's caused by um, deaths of despair. Suicide rates uh, are up. Uh, due to the lockdowns, um, drug overdoses are up uh, because of this despair from the lockdowns and then missed cancer screening treatments. And each one of those arguments, while maybe true in, in a small part, can't explain why this healthy group of individuals, especially in the third quarter of uh, 2021, they, uh, the millennial age group, 25 through 44, saw a spike of 84% excess mortality into the third quarter very temporal rate of change spike. Your dad's commodity trader. You probably traded yourself. It's, it, you know, it's a rate of change. It's a spike like yeah. that. I call that a temporal event. What happened in August, September, and October of 2021? Well, we know anyone who was vaccine hesitant had a gun to their head to keep their job. They had to get a, a, a vaccine. So a lot of uh, mandates started rolling out in the summer. Uh, the, the revered investment banks, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, led the way in August. Corporate America followed, and President Biden signed in executive orders on September 9th. So there was a lot of pull forward of people that had to get the vaccine. So the arguments that it was uh, drug overdoses, suicides, and missed cancer screening treatments doesn't hold water, in my opinion, because you can't say that temporally in the third quarter of 2021, that there was a suicide pact amongst the group life policyholders, or they all decided to overdose on fentanyl and heroin, which, you know, in my experience, anyone using fentanyl or heroin doesn't tend to keep their job very long. You don't, you don't mm -hmm. develop that habit and overdose immediately. 
Um, and then the mis cancer screening treatments. I'm 55. I've never had one. I don't even understand what this test is. I just it, most most cancers are caught when someone presents ill and they go into the doctor. Then the tests are run. You don't go for your normal cancer screening checkups. Mm -hmm. I've never done one in my life. I don't think that's a thing. Mm -hmm. So these excuses. Um, uh, I call it ABV, anything but the vaccine. So this is what is tragic about this is this is something that should be, have been intuitive to most people, but the mainstream media for some reason doesn't want to uh, look at the, at, at the one thing that changed in 21 and 22. It's beyond comprehension. Yeah. It's, it's also, I mean, one of the things that really got me upset and I wasn't looking at the same sets of data that you were looking at and actually this is, you know, you heard, you hear hints about excess mortality, but then you try to look at it and, and there's all kinds of ways in which the data is presented and it doesn't really make sense. So I never really went down this path until, you know, for my own just thinking and my own mindset until I read this book. But I also, what the path that I did go down was that I recognized that the officials who were promoting these lockdowns were absolutely not looking at the ancillary costs of lockdowns, the psychological costs and all of these things. And I was just appalled that those weren't factored into the decision, you know, because if you're making a decision with any kind of executive mindset, you have to factor in all of the consequences that might be there. And very few people were talking about that, including, you know, the financial consequences of just printing trillions of dollars and then what those trillions of dollars could have been used for. You know, I mean, I was the CEO of a company, founded it, grew it, built it, sold it. Like if you're going to allocate, you know, a huge part of your budget to something, you have to look at, all right, well, what if we allocated it to this other thing, like clean water for the whole world, for example, or, you know, better education policy. So there's, I was really upset that all of these other factors weren't being considered. And then it's, it's so interesting to me that now when this number is now, the most kind of glaring threat to the narrative, the excess deaths. Now people are pointing backwards to the cost of the lockdown when that was something they never wanted to look at in the first place, when that was a part of the whole policy. It's like, there's so much inconsistency here. Yeah. The logic doesn't work. And you know, you're a CEO of a company, you build a business, I'm an analyst and you know, the logic thread is completely, um, bogus in my humble opinion and what, what what disturbs me the most is that the country at large doesn't seem to have a memory and uh you know you have a memory i have a memory remember what they said in 2020 and 2021 and now that's flipped on its head and uh they don't want to look at what's going on right in front of them and in my book i conclude with uh I, you know i don't go into the who or why that's not helpful i just want to establish it is it's happening but what i do say is at this point, the data that I see, clearly global governments and health authorities see the same data and they're not talking about it. And the question is why? So there's a cover up of something going on. I believe it's the vaccines. If anybody has another um, thesis that could make sense to me, I'd love to hear it. I haven't heard one yet, but uh, it's become apparent to me that there's definitely a cover up going on on a global scale because this is one of the biggest um, uh, bio uh, uh, biological missteps we've ever made in, in, in humanity. And we've just, you know, dosed 5 billion people on this planet with this, with this thing that is experimental, never was actually tested on humans, had a 28 day trial, which, you know, I can get into it, um, later on, but 
it looks fraudulent to me. It looks like the data was manufactured. So there was data fraud at Pfizer, in my humble opinion. Well, they released a bunch of that that Pfizer data that actually came out that did call into question, you know, some aspects of the vaccine trials at the very least, and also particularly the adverse events, you know, aspect of those trials seem to not be presented in in a forthright way, especially in accord with the narrative. So there's a couple threads here. One thread is I, I absolutely agree with you. I made a, a very soft post that said, in my mind, it was just something about you know, as the narrative changes, can we can we find, you know, really forgiveness in our hearts for those that have that have believed the other thing? Can we like welcome can we welcome the truth back in with open arms and, and end this divisiveness? But the fact that I said as the narrative changes, some people are like, What do you even mean? The narrative hasn't changed. You know, like everything everything that's happening now is exactly and I'm like, what are you talking about? Of course the narrative changed. You know, I mean, and this is something that you you show in the book, all of the different quotes from the different health officials. And then you have QR codes to all of these different quotes, basically saying, you know, safe and effective will prevent you from getting the virus. And then how all of this narrative just absolutely did change. I mean, this is not a this is not a question. You know, this was a pandemic of the unvaccinated and all of these different ideas that were out there. The narrative has shifted. I mean, that's not it's not up for debate you could you and and i invite anybody to go through and look at all of the quotes of the cdc white house health officials and just see how they've actually shifted the narrative along the way so there's no doubt that that's happened and still some people are in denial that actually the narrative has changed there are still many who believe that it's safe and effective and prevents you from getting covid and or transmitting it believe it or not but what do we know we know now that it doesn't not only doesn't prevent COVID, it doesn't prevent transmission. So, so at the very least, it's a defective, not effective product. It's 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 a product that doesn't work. Then, so you have to ask yourself, why would you keep taking something that doesn't work? And then, you, if you get into the safety regime, it's the the thesis, the original thesis they presented to us has fallen apart. It don't, no longer exists. So it mandates across the globe should end based on that corporate mandates federal mandates anybody who has a mandate should drop it just based on that but let's once you get into the safety data it's even more horrific and it, it, it and that's what i think is going on here is if you're in a cover-up mode you, you you act as if so this is what's happening from our regulators and our government authorities it's in, in denmark we saw horrendous excess mortality um, every year since 2020, 2021 was higher than 2020 for the total population across all age cohorts. Same thing happened in 2022, excess mortality uh, above 2021 for all age cohorts. And the Danish government, uh, in, while I was writing the book and I put it in the book, uh, uh, banned vaccines for under individuals under 50, stating that it's um, they'd rather you get COVID than the vaccine, which is a doublespeak way of saying the risk reward is worse than the vaccine, meaning you're more likely to mm. die from it than COVID. And, you know, let's talk about the Pfizer clinical trials, a little known data point that was hidden from us until the fall of um, 2021 through a FOIA request was the all-cause mortality endpoint. And when you do drug trials, there's endpoints you, you test for, and one of which is known as the all-cause mortality which is the risk benefit of the product. And generally speaking, when there's more deaths associated with the 
vaccine group or the product group versus the placebo group, it doesn't usually get approved by the FDA. Pfizer failed that endpoint. There were uh, 21 deaths in the vaccine cohort and 17 in the uh, placebo cohort. That's a 23% excess death or, you know, 23% more people died in a 28-day period in that group. That should have shut it down right then and there, and it didn't. And uh, when this was, when this became apparent to us in the fall of 2021, I spoke, you know, I still have contacts in the investment world, and I have former colleagues who are healthcare analysts that are now CFOs and CEOs of biotech companies. When they heard that, they were horrified. It's the golden, it's the golden rule. You do not uh, push a product that has a risk reward that's adverse at a bare minimum. So, you know, th- this, this thing was, um, a disaster from the get-go, and you know, it's become apparent to me and many others that there was a, a military-grade PSYOP uh, propaganda campaign that was pushed forth, and it's come out through FOIA re- requests that the government gave over a billion dollars to mainstream media to push the, the vaccine narrative and um, censor anybody with a counter-narrative, not allow them on their shows. So informed consent at a bare minimum was violated for the whole country and the globe, in my humble opinion. And that's that's an indisputable fact that that billion dollars is trackable based on the FOIA report that the government paid to run basically an advertising campaign that was that was pro vaccine. Yeah, that came out on the uh, the, Bla- the, the Blaze uh, discovered that Emerald Robert Robinson then uh, made a, a big stink about it, and that's fact. That's not that's not that can't be denied. Yeah. So there's there's a section here in the book that actually. Um, it actually shows that COVID is getting deadlier for, you know, as time is going on. Now, what we understand of COVID is that the variants are parent appearingly getting less and less deadly. And I've had some, you know, Dr. Zach Bush was on my show and he talks about how this is typically the way it goes. They don't get more deadly, they get less deadly because ultimately the virus wants to propagate and if it's killing its hosts, then it actually is counterproductive to the way that nature actually wants to work. So it actually, the incentive, you know, biologically, and this is his opinion and his medical opinion, is it's going to get less and less deadly. And Omicron, of course, seemed to be the mildest of the, of the strains and cases that we got. So we have this general idea that COVID is getting less deadly the more variants that roll out, at least of what we've seen so far. But there was some statistics in here, if I read them correctly, that showed that actually... COVID is getting more deadly, particularly in children, than it ever was, which is a very interesting statistic as well. Yeah, so you you talk to any virologist, epidemiologist, they'll never tell you that there's a virus that um, changed and morphed from killing mostly old to young in in, in the second year of its uh, evolution. And what's apparently started to happen if you believe their narrative is that uh, COVID's becoming more deadly for younger people. So the virus seems to really only want to go after younger folks in 21, 22 and employed folks. So it, it's a very, it's a very smart virus apparently that um, we've never seen on the planet before. And, you know, in the book, I talk about what happened in the UK. Uh, the, in the UK, excess mortality went down for, age groups one through 14 during the lockdowns. And that makes sense because one of the greatest uh, um, causes of death in that age group was accidental. So less activity would 
auger uh, a uh, decreasing excess mortality. And that did occur. Then the lockdowns were lifted and, and excess deaths for the UK children continued to go down. Then mysteriously, when the vaccine was introduced in November of 2021, uh, excess deaths started to go back up. So, you know, it, again, I use deductive reasoning. Something changed. The only thing that changed was that uh, vaccines were introduced for children, age, age groups one through 14. And again, uh, anybody who's out there in the scientific field who wants to argue with me that uh, the virus decided to uh, go after the younger folks uh, later on in the pandemic, when we all know that the, 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 the strains are becoming less virulent, uh, I'd love to hear that argument or see that peer review paper. So again, you know, what I do as an investor is I have an analyst mosaic uh, I use deductive reasoning, and the data is suggesting the vaccines are the cause. And uh, I use different databases, different uh, studies, and they all say all point in the, in the general direction. Once the vaccines introduced, young folks start dying. If you were going to steel man the argument, you know, some kind of argument that refutes debunks that thesis i mean when you've talked about it there's there's the attempts like the sudden adult you know sudden adult death syndrome and these different ways that people try to explain it but is there any other thing that that we haven't mentioned that somebody listening to this podcast would be like ah oh, this is all bullshit you know um COVID, you know, the vaccines are the vaccines, you know, make make COVID less deadly. And that's proven. And there does seem to be some statistics about that, where actually getting vaccinated in certain, you know, in certain and analysis of data has made it less deadly for certain subsets, not children, obviously, I think you've shown that conclusively here in the in the book. But is that the is that kind of the steel manned argument is that there are some studies that show that if you get the vaccine, COVID is less likely to kill you or be, or turn into long COVID or, or like what's the steel manned argument against the thesis generally that you're, propo you're promoting here? So let's, let's follow the narrative change. It was, uh, it was uh, going to prevent you from getting COVID in transmission that then changed and morphed into, gee, I'm glad I got COVID, you know, public uh, politicians and public officials would say, I've got COVID and uh, it's bad, but it would have been a lot worse if I didn't get the vaccine. That's one of those marketing terms, it seems to me. Uh, I've actually called out on many shows. I'd love to see a peer-reviewed study that it actually does prevent hospitalization. Haven't seen that yet. Um, and any data that's out there would only probably benefit the old folks uh, because we are seeing that older folks are dying at a lesser rate than younger folks. But that could be also because of pull-forward of the numbers in 2020 from people who were mostly old who got who got uh, wiped out, but uh, we, we, and we did see a declining excess mortality in old folks. But once vaccinations were introduced, older folks started uh, their excess deaths started rising again. So the argument that uh, it prevents serious hospitalization, I think, is a straw man argument. And until I see some real evidence or a, a study on that. Um, it just seems like a narrative change to me in a marketing tool. Um, that's number one. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I hear is long COVID. Long COVID is causing these excess deaths. Now, the interesting thing about long COVID, is it a real thing? It is, but it's, it's usually real for people with all sorts of health problems as well. And it um, doesn't have a clinical definition yet, which I find curious. 
And uh, there was an article written about uh, long COVID causing a labor shortage. And that article mysteriously appeared after my testimony to Senator Johnson saying that I believe a lot of the labor shortage is due to disabilities from the vaccine. And in this, in, the, in that article, it's a CNBC article, they really didn't give anything other than opinion. Uh, they, they say that it needs long-term studies. They're not sh really sure what's causing it. And uh, I've talked to a couple of doctors who I said, look, why do you think they don't have a clinical definition for long COVID? And the answer we come up with is a lot of the long COVID symptoms mimic adverse events from the vaccine that are now coming out in the Pfizer trial. So there's there's this interesting dynamic where you want they want to blame long COVID, but yet they haven't defined it yet. Very interesting, mm -hmm. curious, in my humble opinion. With this data that's out there, you know, Denmark made the decision, they analyzed the data as a country, and they decided, all right, we are no longer mandating or even recommending vaccines for anybody underneath the age of 50. And then at the same time, our officials and our government are still promoting vaccination for anybody over six months old and for mothers who are pregnant and nursing. There's absolutely no exclusions being recommended by our government despite this data coming out. I mean, that's that's pretty unbelievable to actually to actually grasp that this data is here and nobody's pushing the pause button on anything. If anything, it's just gas and more gas on on the on the narrative. Yeah, it's I I, I said early on when this started to come become apparent to me and I, it was starting to make the media rounds. I I'm on record saying on Steve Bannon's war room in February, March, that this is such a horrible mistake and uh, problem for the government and the health officials that they're going to double down. So I, I understand criminal behavior and whether it was a, a criminal intent or just a realization they screwed up, we're in the cover up mode. And this is what you do in cover up. I've seen this in corporate fraud after corporate fraud when the fraud starts to unravel. The CEO of the company doesn't go, oh, you caught me, guys. What he does is he continues to act as if, and he would call his favorite shareholders and whisper sweet nothings in their ears and you know, beg them to hold on to the stock as it's cascading lower or buy more. And uh, he would lie all the way until the regulators uh, would uh, you know, arrest him. So this is, I've seen this before, and it's tragic. And you know what's even more ridiculous is the U.S. Uh, used to lead on health issues. We were the leaders on health issues. And my two partners at my hedge fund that have done a lot of the analysis of this data said to me, Ed, why is the U.S. not the leader in this issue? And I said, good question. They're from Portugal, and they're, they're just horrified that the U.S. health authorities are not leading like Denmark. I mean, we've got a small country of Denmark that has to lead. And Unfortunately, they're small and they don't have the clout nor the media attention that they deserve. But, you know, they didn't admit what's going on, but mm -hmm. at least they, they, they care about their citizens enough to, for, to stop the program and kill their young, most able-bodied people amongst their population and or disable them. I mean, what, what this sounds like is that, you know, and it, what it certainly seems like with the amount of revenue that, you know, pharma contributes to both campaign contributions to advertising to mainstream media. I mean, it's astronomical numbers. They're by far the leader in 
all of the contributions. And when I asked, you know, Brett Weinstein, like, what do you think is the meta problem, the meta crisis we're facing? He said, it's the crisis of capture. It's that actually people aren't acting autonomously. They're beholden to, you know, in this case, you could call them investors or shareholders, but they're actually just contributors, advertisers to this whole machine. And so what we're basically, it feels like is our democracy is really a corporatocracy. So it acts as you know much more like a corporate much more like a corporation and as you said when a corporation is facing fraud then there's a regulatory body that ultimately goes in investigates and finds out what's happened and then whatever penalties are levied on that which by the way has happened many times to all of these big pharma companies they've been fined two billion one billion like you look at the whole list there's not one that has a clean record of not being caught for fraud Right. So let's just establish that, that all pharma has already been caught for fraud. But it seems like our whole government is now as acting like one giant corporation participating in fraud, except they're the regulators as well. So like what is how is this actually if they continue to control the narrative and nobody's going to catch them? I mean, is it possible that the government could continue to just double down, double down, double down, and this corporatocracy could just carry on, and they'll just be a small, ostracized, and kind of scapegoated group of individuals who are trying to express the truth. But actually, this this just exists onward indefinitely. Or do you think there's a point at which something can actually happen? Maybe you know, the lawsuits start to actually take effect, and the courts can actually hold the government accountable. Like, is there any accountability that we can see in this. Yeah, two things. Let me talk about a term you use, meta. Um, I've, in 2021, I, I, I character, one of the problems people have is they can't believe that this could go on with all these supposed gatekeepers watching and uh, caring for us, correct? Well, I called it a meta fraud. And it's, it's not necessarily a bunch of guys sitting in a room having a conspiracy to you know, poison the population. It was opportunists who saw cash flows and revenue streams. You had the pharma industry under the color of law being able to monopolize a product that they that you had to get mandated injected in your arm. So obviously they were on board. And so they probably pushed this product faster than they normally would just to get it out there because they saw big dollars. You had the tech companies who and social media companies who saw an opportunity for compliance and surveillance, another cash flow stream. Then you had media who's already beholden to uh, pharma companies because they contribute such a large portion of the revenues. And then plus, the, you know, with the government uh, advertising campaign on top, it was just a momentum, institutional momentum that just kept, you know, going off the train tracks and uh, hurtling towards the, um, the, uh, the, the ravine. And, and it, it's not stopping. So what do we do now? So to your point, does this stop? Will justice ever come? And it's, I believe it is. And the reason is, and, and it's tragic, and that's why the book is out. Uh, the, the number of people dying from this and being injured, is the numbers are staggering. Um, the disability numbers for the employed are about, we, we conservatively estimate 1.2 million people have been disabled of 100 million that work in this country since uh, February of 2021. That's, that's a big number. Um, and, it's, and we're yeah. probably low. And so that these are numbers you can't hide. And uh, eventually the truth will come to light. That's why this book was written. And there seems to be word of mouth going on. The good news is the bivalent booster 
is not being uh, taken up. It's 11% uptake. So word of mouth is getting around. And we now have uh, Governor DeSantis. He's got a state's attorney general looking into this. And that's what happened in, in the big tobacco wars. Once state's attorney generals got involved, discovery comes. So the wheels of justice are slowly grinding. Uh, the problem is, is that as the powers that be uh, double down, um, it continues to kill people. So the message I'm trying to get out is just stop taking this this booster. It doesn't work, number one. Number two, you're at huge risk. So I, I believe a lot in markets and the marginal mind. So I believe there's a tipping point coming and an awareness. And when it comes, it's going to have uh, grave implications for, you know, all sorts of institutions and a lot of chaos might unfold, but the chaos will be necessary to get us to the other side, which is a kind of a truth and reconciliation commission, a rebuilding of institutions based on integrity and uh, un, um, tearing down all the incentives for profit that seem to have crept into our uh, government institutions. So we have to remake the system and it's going to take some time and chaos, but that's kind of where I think it's going. And it's kind of a grassroots campaign. Uh, at this point, but it's starting to slowly get into the body politic. I was happy to go see Senator Johnson and say what I said. And I said to him that it's a national security issue because uh, it's been detrimental to your health to be employed in 21 and 22. And we seem to have poisoned the military and the, the most able-bodied amongst us in, inadvertently or on purpose. Doesn't matter. I don't care. We just need to stop it. Yeah. I mean, some of the psychodynamics at play, you know, I've heard you talk about it a little bit as well is, and there's, there are many, many, but I think one of the ones that I've seen, you know, personally, which is, it's really actually tragic. And I have the deep compassion for this, at least on, it's the sunk cost fallacy. And, you know, there's a, there's a close friend of, of mine and, and some of my other friends and, you know, he kind of rushed out in the first wave of vaccination and got the vaccines and got his children vaccinated and, you know, got everybody in his family vaccinated. He was he was able through, you know, influence and whatever to get the earliest batch of vaccines, like the very first ones that came out. And I know it's supposed to be some kind of lottery, but, you know, I think he was at least <laughs> maybe he won the lottery and got it first. But whatever, he was like right out of the right out of the gate and he got him and. Then, of course, and, and now, and I actually, actually, at that point, you know, we didn't know that much. So, you know, there's really no, you can't really hypothesize nearly as much fault for the people who just rushed out and got them at that point because it was really kind of, well, we don't really know that much about it. You know, even for me, I was thinking, well, these vaccines aren't ejuvenated, so they don't have the mercury and the formaldehyde and whatever else that's super toxic in the other vaccines, maybe they'll be kind of innocuous actually. And maybe they'll be helped. Like I didn't know, I didn't take it myself, but I was like, I, maybe it'll be fine. Like, so I just want to put that out there. Like there was, there's lots of times where we just didn't know, but to get back to the sunk cost fallacy, you know, in offering to share this book, you know, he just said straight up, like, look, like, I can't, I can't handle reading this right now. It's too much. It's, I, you know, I'm vaccinated. My kids are vaccinated. Like I can't, I can't, I can't bear to actually look at this. And it was like, uh, there was a deep compassion in that. And of course I'm not going to like shove it in his face because this is something that's very hard to grapple with. And so many millions and millions of people are in this position where they've been, they vaccinated themselves 
and then they have to realize that they might have done some damage to their health or they vaccinated their children or they've encouraged the general public to get vaccinated. So it's a huge, it's a huge ask to actually ask people to grapple with these facts, you know, so they're going to want to see they're, they're celebrating and championing the double down of the narrative because it's protective to their own psychodynamics. Yeah. The sun cost fallacy is a real thing. Um, you know, to your point about the early days, I mean, I had, a, I had suspicions of what was going on. I personally know a lot about, um, healthcare and how drugs are approved. So I, I, and, and the fact that it was a new novel technology under warp speed, I, my personal view at the beginning of this was, I'll wait. I'm not taking anything new. Uh, right. That was my, I was like, I'll let other people want to be experimented upon. Um, and then quickly we started hearing anecdotes. Now, given where I am with my knowledge, I, I'm divorced. I have three kids and an ex-wife, a wonderful mother of my children. Um they took the doses, the initial dose, and I tried to talk them out of it, but I didn't have the data I have now. I, this was June of 2021. But I will say they didn't buy into the sun cost fallacy, which is once they realized what was going on, um, they're, they're, they've stopped. No more boosters, uh, thank God. Um, and they don't feel bad. And, and I offered them hope. Here's the hope for people who did get vaccinated that haven't had any side effects or feel fine. Um, it seems to be uh, that there were some hot doses that went out there, different lot doses that, are, that killed more people than others. There's also the fact that they manufactured this so fast and the storage has to be very cold. And a lot of the implementation mm -hmm. of this vaccine was poorly done. A lot of these people weren't trained properly. So if you went to your local Walmart uh, or uh, a Walgreens and got the jab, if it was left out too long, it degraded and you didn't get the um, spike protein. It just wasn't able to take. So, And also, they didn't shake the doses. So they, were, they came in five-dose files. So if they uh, didn't shake it and, they, and you were the first dose out of that bottle, you didn't get all the, uh, the stuff that was supposed to work. So there's a lot of hope uh, um, that you didn't actually get what you thought you got. And it, it, you, you, got, you got some sort of goop in your arm that was degraded. So there's that, I want to offer that hope to people that... Yeah, and that's something that I, you know, I, had, I had a podcast with Dr. Aditi Bhargava and actually Kyle Warner, who actually, he appears in one of the articles. He was a mountain bike racer. And, and the podcast is called The Inconvenient Injured. And it was basically a couple people who'd been injured, including Kyle Warner, and how they were treated in the hospital when they came and said, look, I got vaccinated and I have problems. My heart's, you know, I'm having this condition in my heart. And they were kind of shunned and thrown away. They actually told him that maybe he should go home and try to take a shit, like, like he needed to have a bowel movement. Just like ridiculous the way he was treated for this thing. And like wouldn't fight, like, the difficulty in filing the VAERS reports and also the fact that filing a false VAERS claim is a federal offense. So all of these VAERS numbers, which are which is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, they're already astronomic, astronomically high, but potentially only, you know, one study said it might only be 1% of the actual. And so there's massive amounts of things going on. But we also had Dr. Aditi Bhargava who echoed some of the same sentiments that you said that, especially the cold storage, if the vaccines weren't kept cold in manufacturing and transport all the way through the thing, the actual, the, the vaccine would degrade and you would be getting something that was little more than just, you know, 
water with different other, you know, innocuous particles. So that's one aspect of it. And there's also the other aspect of where and how it was injected and whether I, I forget the, I forget the term, but you can, you can pull back on the needle aspirate. I think you pull, you you pull back on the needle to see if you're actually in like a, a, a vein. So you're mainlining the vaccine or whether you're going into the muscle tissue, like you're supposed to. And they were actually given guidance not to do that for whatever reason. And so one of the theories that she has is that, all right, a lot of these vaccines degraded. So a lot of people got nothing. And so that accounts for people having no effects. So if you haven't had effects yet, you know, you very well might have gotten a shot of nothing. And also, if a lot of the people who had some real serious effects, they might have got it straight intravenously, which is, you know, in her mind, also another added risk. So basically, there is a lot of hope that if you haven't experienced anything yet, perhaps you're absolutely completely in the clear because you weren't actually given an active an active vaccine or the way it was administered was actually a lot safer than the way it was administered elsewhere. But do you have any data? And that's just to kind of back up some of the points that you were making, but from, from Dr. Bargava's perspective, um, do you have any data that, that shows like the time frame that's the most dangerous? Like, is there a window? Is there a window post? Like when is the most dangerous window for people to have, you know, really serious adverse events? after taking the vaccine? Is it like right after the second dose or do you have any data on that? So interestingly enough, um, uh, one of my uh, partners, Josh Sterling, who I feature in the book, has got some data from Germany and it shows that a lot of the adverse deaths occurred after just one dose. And what that meant was they didn't, they, they weren't alive to come back for the second. Um, and so it, it can happen fast. And then the problem we're grappling with is if you did end up getting the actual vaccine and it was administered properly and you got the actual spike protein reproducing in your in your body, there are some, it looks like there's some medium-term effects and long-term effects. We don't know, but they're showing up in the numbers, unfortunately. Um, what I can say is if, if you've already got the vaccine and you're worried about this, and I don't want you to think there's a ticking time bomb in you, but what you can't do is continue to get boosters. And mm-hmm. I make a finance analogy. Your original thesis was it was going to prevent COVID and, and stop transmission. Well, that's clearly not true. So uh, since your investment thesis has been blown out of the water, what, what you would do if this, this was a stock, you would sell the stock. Well, if you got the initial uh, two doses and maybe even a booster at this point, don't get any more boosters because you're getting more long the vaccine. You want to n- go short the vaccine and stop taking it because there does seem to be a dose dependent effect going on uh, in that um, every time you take a booster, it's it, it, it's almost like Russian roulette. You put another uh, chamber in the bullet, a uh, bullet in the chamber. So mm-hmm. one of my messages is have hope. If you didn't have any adverse effects, good for you. I hope you got the, the innocuous material, but don't get boosters because then you're, you, you're taking another shot at getting uh, the stuff that, that produces the spike protein, which it turns out is we're finding is very toxic to the body and causes a whole host of reactions, sometimes fast, sometimes slow. So that is the hope I offer. And and, and the finance analogy, your investment thesis, your thesis on why you took it originally has been compromised. Don't take any more. Don't get more. Yeah, don't get longer. Your, the cover vaccine. Your, yeah. Cover your position yeah. for sure. The, uh, yeah, I just want to offer another hope, which is, you know, more metaphysical than actually, 
any of the things we said is I just genuinely believe in the miraculous nature of the human body when coupled with belief. So the absolute worst thing you can do is to go into a spiral of fear and a spiral of shame and a spiral of signaling to your body that you were given poison and that you're going to die because the nocebo effect is real. You know, I think it was Sam Lond who the doctors, it's a famous case. The doctor said, oh, Sam, you got, you got a, a tumor. You got two weeks to live. And, and he's like, oh, shit. And then he dies within two weeks. And then he'd do an autopsy and he didn't even have it. You know, and so the nocebo effect is, and, and that's L-O-N-D-E if you want to look that up. But the nocebo effect, which is believing something is going to harm you, is very real. And the placebo effect, which Dr. Joe Dispenza leverages, to heal all kinds of different things, because of course we know it heals things. We account for it in every clinical trial. The placebo effect, which is the mind influencing the body, is start to harness those powers for yourself. Don't go down the nocebo rabbit hole. Tell yourself that you didn't get the vaccine or that you're absolutely fine. And then if you did, and even if you did have a harmful adverse event, like we have somebody on our team, a young guy who eats healthier than anybody I know, would actually, I would assume, would be the absolute pinnacle of health. If I had to make a bet, who was going to be the healthiest guy? He was, he was hospitalized for nine days with a stroke, and he's in his early twenties. You know, after getting after getting vaccinated, and like so, in even in those cases, even if something did happen, just actually double down, go long on the body's miraculous power to heal itself and to reverse some of these conditions, and believe that reality into existence, which is scientifically proven. It's called the placebo effect. And it's just harnessing that for your own for your own benefit, and that would just be another thing that I would offer is is really just double down on that belief system and avoid the other side of it as much as you can. While of course, you know, don't go out and continue to take vaccines and then try to trick yourself after that. It won't won't work that way. But but just try to be mindful of your own psychology as you as you move through this which was also egregious on behalf of the doctors who kept saying there's one doctor who said not getting vaccinated and walking around outside is like walking in front of a firing squad and hoping not to get hit by bullets and it's like putting that amount of fear out into the culture that's absolutely absolutely malpractice on behalf of the doctors to to avoid cuz they actually train doctors about placebo and nocebo effects and how to actually word things and knowing how they word things affect the outcome of certain diagnoses so they're actually trained in this but for whatever reason during covid they ignored all of those best practices and were actually practicing psychological malpractice on the general public i agree i'd like to piggyback on what you said i have personal experience with and part of the reason I was suspicious, I, I have experience with the pharmaceutical industry in the form of SSRIs. I, I, I had mild anxiety and depression uh, that was caused by my own stinking thinking. Okay, so I went to a <laughs> therapist who then got me to a psychiatrist, put me on a bunch of these um, pharmaceutical products, and I got worse. Uh, I became clinically depressed. And luckily, uh, somebody in the profession pulled me aside as I was struggling with this and said, uh, you're not depressed. You're not whatever they say you are. You basically have a spiritual malady. And my, I'm a psychiatrist. I take people off all these drugs. So I was uh, a train wreck in 2011-12. And I came out of it. I'm off all drugs. And like you said, the body's a miraculous thing. I used God and spirituality. I gave up all my fears and things. Mm-hmm. I used God, gave them over to him. But then I also had to do my part of the bargain, which was get healthy. And uh, I don't drink. 
don't smoke. Um, I do a lot of meditation and I do a lot of fasting. And over time, uh, my anxiety and depression is gone. And I don't have to fear about anything anymore because I have a mindset that as long as I do the next right thing, life is going to get better and I'll be rewarded. So I don't live in fear. And you can, the body is a miraculous healing agent as long as you get the mind and the spirit in the same direction and the avatar, the physical. So you get all three clicking, yeah. you can heal almost anything or, or overcome any obstacle in your life. And so anybody who's been injured by the vaccine, you get this mindset, you can get, you can get better. I, I, I guarantee you, you can get better. Amen. Amen. I believe that. I believe that 100% as well. There was something interesting that you mentioned that actually, you know, if you're going to look at what the effects of this are in the macro, that, you know, one, there's some, there's some trouble ahead for insurance companies that are paying out these life insurance policies that didn't price in this increase of, of deaths. And that's trouble for the insurance companies because they could effectively default if they continue to have to pay pay out on policies that they weren't pricing in, you know, at the beginning. And then there's labor shortages that may be coming. So from an economic lens, you, I, I was seeing you kind of go and explore this. And of course, that's one of the ways that your mind works is just seeing like, all right, well, what's going to happen to these big, these big kind of entities and sectors that we're seeing in the economy? And then how's that going to affect the global economy moving forward? So I'd love for you to just touch on what you see from a from an economic perspective about what might happen because of what's happening here with uh, with the excess deaths. Yeah, let's start with the macro. So the macro, these numbers are big; they're not small. I talked about dis. Let's just use the U.S. as an example. Disabilities in the employed, 1.2 million is probably higher. The unemployment rate is three percent. There's about 100 million uh, employed in the country actually doing jobs. Um, that's a big number. So a lot of the wage uh, or the um, help wanted ads and, and labor shortages you're seeing are not the great resignation. They're not, you know, millennials getting lazy or people going on disability just to get collected check. It's actually happening and it's going to affect uh, our economy for years to come because um, with labor shortages, that's wage inflation. So inflation's kind of here to stay. There'll be periods of deflationary bouts with inflation, but we're going to have labor shortages, and that um, augurs poorly for all sorts of uh, goods and services that we've taken for granted, and it's going to cause supply chain uh, breakages, which we're already seeing. Um, I'm hearing anecdotal stories from radiologists who've heard what I'm talking about, and they say, yes, we have a shortage of radiologists because the hospital industry was mandated fully to take these jabs. We're not able to... Um, get to these um, MRI, MRI CAT scans in a timely fashion. So diagnoses are being delayed. So you just start to multiply these little things across the economy. Um, our world's going to change slowly. And I, one of the examples I offer on Maui is my, my Audi A6 was uh, hit at a stop sign and it was a fender bender. My radiator was damaged, but it wasn't, it wasn't like junk the car kind of damage. I could have gotten it fixed, but the, because of the, um, labor shortages in the auto body shops and the part shortages and the shortages across the food chain, the decision was made by my insurance company to junk the thing. After this, July 14th was the uh, accident in November, I got my check for way more than the car was worth because they can sell it for parts. And this is, this is a kind of the strange things we're gonna see, empty shelves, um, 
you know, just shortages of all sorts of uh, first responders. It's it's going to kind of become third worldish in a way, uh, if, if that makes sense from a macro standpoint. And then you go down into the industries. Obviously, the insurance companies are still asleep at the switch. I was listening to their Q2 conference calls and Q3 conference calls. And on Q2, they predicted uh, excess mortality would start to go down and, and get more normalized as time went on. But that's not happening. So in the most recent quarter, a couple of companies had some really bad results. Lincoln Financial, which is a big insurance company, when their stock price went down 30% in a day. And if you know anything about insurance companies, that, that kind of volatility does not happen. That's like a, a tech stock blowing up. This does not happen to insurance companies. It went down 30%. They had to issue convertible conferred bonds uh, to um, recapitalize. And they got in trouble because they got their excess mortality assumptions wrong. And they have a policy called universal life, which is a lot, you're allowed to lapse the policy their lapse rate assumptions are off because people are not lapsing the policy. They're they're hanging on to it. Why do you think statistically more people are hanging on to it? Because we're getting sick. And so Lincoln Mm. Financial is just, I think, the Bear Stearns of the financial crisis before Lehman. So Lincoln Financial is a harbinger of what kind of pain is coming for insurance companies, unless they wake up and they don't seem to be. Uh, unfortunately, they, well, what what can they what can they do if they wake up though? I mean, how do they how do they recap? I mean, they still have to pay out on the on the terms that they already agreed on the pricing for, right? Well, like, they, they, they have like, to pay, but but what they can do is raise current pricing, um, uh-huh. or and or take some of their profits and increase their reserve losses. What happens uh, that's bad is when they're surprised and they're and they're surprised at the moment. If they continue continue to get surprised and continue to assume excess mortality is going to go back to normal, they will continue to lose money. So they don't know how to price their product at the moment. That's a big problem. Yeah. That, that's their job is to price product. So, I mean, if you were still, if you were still at, at BlackRock and you're in, you had an investment thesis, the thesis would be to go short these big, you know, these big insurance company stocks at this um, point, Shorting right? is I mean, difficult, as you know, but yeah, I would, I would, I, if I was a long only manager at BlackRock, I would own zero insurance companies and I would stay away from um, anything that's affected by labor shortages uh, and any, any business model that uh, had a, a labor as a big part of their margin structure. I'd start, be, I'd be thinking this way. I want to only own businesses that have, um, not a lot of employees that have the strong, you know, this is the kind of, that's my brain just starts going. Yeah. Um, what do you think this means for, I mean, and this is a bigger question and it has a lot of different factors, but if you're going to look, we got inflation and just zooming out of the, of the COVID COVID being a factor in this larger picture, but just tapping into your experience in analyzing the economy as a whole. I mean, what do you think we're, what do you think we're looking at? You know, as as an economy as what's going to happen are we going to keep raising rates to try and combat inflation and then the stock price is going to continue to go down like what's an overall picture of just just your best estimation of what the next few years hold from a you know u.s economic perspective yeah so my my two partners are phd physicists in portugal and uh, carlos has got great early cycle indicators and models and um he's been predicting a mild recession earlier in the year uh, as of January, February. But as of uh, this summer into the fall, 
uh, we have this expansion index. We track early cycle indicators. It's looking like a deep, deep recession in Q1 and Q2, bare minimum. Uh, going to happen. It's unavoidable. Our expansion index is at minus 90%. So it's in the cards. It's baked into the cake. Um, you know, you don't even need Carlos and his economic cycle indicators to tell you that because historically when the Federal Reserve goes from zero up 400 plus basis points in less than nine months, um, you can look at the Goldman Sachs um, Financial Conditions Index and it's, it's uh, risen by 400 basis points and every 1% move in that index usually takes one to two points of GDP off the economy nine to 12 months out. So what's going to happen is baked into the cake. We're going into a hard, deep recession in Q1, Q2. Whether it's um, turned systemic, I don't know. Systemic means some big financial institutions fail as a result of it and then there's a daisy chain effect. Uh, but it's going to be like the... Um, uh, 1990 recession or the 2000-2001, the uh, great financial crisis was systemic, but it's going to be hard and it's going to be deep and we'll see what happens coming out of it. But uh, one of the other things that I worry about is uh, we kind of seem to be the, at the end of the dollar reserve system because we saw some anomalies go on that we've never seen before. This has been the first commodity cycle. Uh, uh, we had a 200% advance in the CRB in a very short amount of time since uh, the Fed money printing. But what also we saw was the dollar going up at the same time. And if you know anything about commodities cycles, they only go up when the dollar is declining because of uh, creditation. Mm -hmm. We've had these two go up at the same time. So what we're seeing is uh, a global credit contraction with a commodity cycle surge, never happened before. So it kind of, it's a signpost that perhaps uh, we're at the end of the sovereign debt bubble and, and the guts of the system are breaking. And that's why there's all this talk of a central bank digital currency and a great reset and a new, well, I, I say new world order, a new monetary system. I think that's cool. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, that all sounds, uh, you know, that all leads into a lot more theories about why this whole thing happened in the first place. And, you know, there's a lot of, theories about finances. I mean, I think BlackRock was actually one of the first people to come out and say that the U.S. economy was facing, there's a 2019 report saying that U.S. economy was facing significant threat unless a few conditions happened. One was that the government went direct and actually gave a bunch of money to the people, which of course happened during the pandemic. And also there was a way to, you know, stop the, stop the inflationary, inflationary pressure of that money, just creating massive hyperinflation immediately, which was also accomplished by the lockdown of so many businesses. So the money couldn't flow in that way. And it's, it's, it's interesting. And just one of the threads, and this is not the topic of our, of our podcast here, but there's a lot of people who start to link these threads and find economic motives behind the, behind the scenes here about people who really understand the, the economics and understand how fragile our economic system is and potentially how this you know, this situation was ca like leveraged and capitalized upon to actually meet some financial goals that, uh, that needed to be met to just keep everything afloat. Yeah. In, in, a certain in, way. in 2019, those of us in the financial world were tracking the beginnings of the crack in the system. There were, there was what was called a repo crisis in overnight lending rates that was starting in October of 2019 and credit contraction was beginning 
the, the stock markets did go up a little higher, but you could tell that was coming close to the end. And then mysteriously, uh, COVID appeared in February, March of 2020. And uh, that's, you know, there's, there's, you know, two types of economic downturns. There's a shock that's forced by governments and or, you know, or, or there's internal shocks. Internal shocks are worse to deal with. This was ex an external shock that was um, met with money printing. And it gave the Federal Reserve an, an excuse to print unprecedented amounts of money, 65% growth in the uh, money supply, and also gave them new powers to buy corporate credit that they never had been able to do. So whether or not COVID appeared on time or was engineered, who cares? It was used as, a, as an excuse across the globe to print more money and spend like drunken sailors on the political side, for sure. And what mm -hmm. all that's really resulted in is kicking the can down the road another two years. Here we are, we're careening towards a deep global recession. And the other thing I'd like to offer uh, is what is going on in China. So China, uh, my, my partners, uh, especially Carlos, wrote a book called um, Economic Cycles, Demographics and Debt. And in that book, he highlighted that China was going to hit a demographic wall in 2020. Well, 2020 is also when COVID appeared on the scene and what, what demographics are destiny. And a lot of China's growth had been um, initially funded by our uh, moving our manufacturing over there. So a lot of the investment and debt that was raised was good money, good in that it, it funded manufacturing plants. But then as the great financial crisis hit the last 12, 14 years of that um, in China has been, infrastructure and ghost cities and their population growth was able to fill those projects and service the debt but uh the chickens have come on the roost and now they're imploding economically and we forecast their growth rate gdp long term is going to drop to two to three percent because of this demographic wall and so china has what we call uh, zero COVID policy and if you're an, an authoritarian totalitarian government that seems like an insane policy well that's a good policy if you want to uh, prevent uh, food riots, um, employment riots, and just riots in general. And that's what we're, we've been hearing about lately is the riots in China um, and the protests. A lot of people say it's due to COVID policies. I say it's due to economic problems, and this is just cover and a control system. So it's a convenient mm -hmm. control system uh, to blame on something else other than your own failed policies and your own government. So... You know, and I know you got to get off here soon. Uh, although I would love to talk to you about a, a billion different things, but if if we had to leave people with a message of some hope and some action steps they can take, just like we did to the people who've vaccinated themselves or vaccinated those they love, you know, if someone's hearing this on the financial side and said, like, all right, you know, I was I was feeling hopeful, but now I'm feeling absolutely desperate and and in despair about what's financially coming. Like, what are some steps that you know, people can take to actually, you know, protect themselves in an impending, you know, financial crisis like, like maybe coming? Well, first, again, like we talked about for the vaccinated, fear is the mind killer. You can't be in fear. And once you get in fear, you make stupid decisions. What I've been telling uh, people since January, February, who've asked my opinion, and I've said on some of the this podcasts I've been on is cash is not a bad thing to have in your portfolio. Cash is a position. And even though there's inflation raging, um, you got you got to weigh financial assets dropping way more than the inflation, and uh, so 
cash uh, in an inflationary cycle is not that if financial assets are going to implode. And I believe they are. We've already lost uh, 20% on the U.S. stock market. Other sectors have been more devastated. So I've been recommending cash as a part of your portfolio. And why do I do that? Now, whether you go all cash, I leave that up to you. But the point I make is when the uh, news is really, really bad and it sounds like the world's ending, do what J.P. Morgan of old 100 years ago would do. Buy when there's blood in the streets because, you know, there will be um, the sun will rise on the other side and there will be another cycle. So have some dry powder in your portfolio. And when the news is as awful as it can be and stock, some stocks are down 90, 80 percent start going back in or, or, or bonds. I mean, this is what the true wealthy individuals of the globe do. They, they accumulate cash at the top of the cycle and they buy when everyone's selling at the bottom, when the, when the news flows the worst. Markets top on euphoria, they bottom on bad news. Now, the news is not as, is not as bad as it needs to be for a bottom. I think we're going to see some sort of bottom in Q1, Q2, or Q3 of next year. Um, but you know, cash is not a bad place to be. That's just, I, I don't want to, I, I don't suggest you try shorting or using futures markets, just, you know, raise some cash. That's, that's the best advice I can mm -hmm. offer. It's free and I'm not going to charge you for it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's sound advice. And then metals, I mean, is this, this was always a safe harbor in any times of, you know, economic instability, but it seems like the, the metals are, are not doing what they used to do and they're actually trending you know, a little bit differently now than uh, than they used to. There's there used to be a place where, there's, yeah. yeah, there's two reasons for that. So Bitcoin became a competitor to um, gold and silver. Um, and that's captured the imagination of a lot of young people that would have traditionally bought gold and silver if they had the mindset that the world was not as it, as it seems. So that, that there's been competition for assets. Then secondly, I talked about the dollar going up. I think the dollar system fails with the dollar going uh, failing up. And what I mean by that is credit creation causes the dollar to go down. That's expansionary for economies and, and whatnot. When the dollar is going up, that's, an, that's a contraction of credit. So gold um, is tied to the dollar, unfortunately, as is mm -hmm. silver. So I'm not suggesting that long term uh, they're not great investments because if there's a new system, there'll be a new trading relationship. But I think if you're going to own gold and silver, um, the papers, the futures market has always been rigged. Having physical gold and silver is not a bad idea on hand. Mm -hmm. Don't have it mm -hmm. at a brokerage in a futures account. I don't think that's wise. Right. And real estate is probably, you know, subject to these economic conditions as well. So it's, it's a little bit dicey to go in, go in hard into real estate unless you're going to live there, grow food there, whatever, do the, do the thing and really make it a part of your life, right? Right. If it's a home, don't worry about it. But if it's investment properties, um, again, real estate is very localized, as you know. Um, I would, I would, I've been telling people who are looking to buy a second home uh, or, or a rental property to wait. And on Maui, it's coming our way because, um, you know, I have friends who are in the real estate business and their business is bad, getting worse. So prices are, gonna, prices are stubbornly still high because the, the, the sellers haven't figured out yet how bad it's going to get. And there'll be a clearing price pretty fast sometime next year. So be patient. Real estate's stickier than uh, the financial markets because, you know, sellers always think that they uh, their home is special. So wait, it's coming. <laughs>
Your home is special, everybody. It is. <laughs> um, Ed, thank you, so, thank you so much, and uh, and I just deeply appreciate your work, and and I hope this podcast reaches people and and gives them, you know, uh, the truth, but also some hope, you know, some hope about um, you know, how can we how we can weather the storm, and if you know anything about the human history we've weathered a lot of different storms every plague and pestilence and war and calamity and you know authoritarianism and everything we've weathered it all and we've always come through and and i believe in i believe in people and it doesn't mean we don't have to take action and 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 let our voices be heard but also i just have a deep faith that we're gonna we're gonna come through this uh times may be tough but you know pull together pull tight you know keep your heart open and stay out of fear and uh, and let's do this together. Absolutely, and I believe a renaissance is on the other side. So from all great evils, great goods usually come. It's a cycle of, of human history. Unfortunately, we've had a great evil the last uh, couple decades, and uh, on the other side, we'll have a renaissance. Is my hope. Let's go. Let's go. Thank you so much, Ed. Deeply appreciate you. The book is called Cause Unknown. It's available on Amazon, and just. Be ready for an emotional ride if you uh, if you take a look at this book because uh, it definitely definitely hit me really hard. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Ed Dowd. We talk a lot about numbers, and I wanted to anchor at the beginning how emotionally impactful these numbers are. Every number being a human life, and to just hold the utmost compassion for your neighbors, for the people who agree with you and disagree with you. And in these trying times, we all have to come together in a way that is revolutionary. And the revolution is going to be a revolution of solidarity. And I just invite everybody to look at all of this with that type of mindset and know that divisiveness is the enemy to the renaissance that we know must come on the backside of everything that we're experiencing here. So thanks for tuning in. I appreciate you guys. And I'll see you next week.